0: Welcome to Buy the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Pauldoyen. So one of my favorite parts of working in bars and restaurants is that you get the opportunity to meet with winemakers and importers who visit the market to get face time with wine buyers. Oftentimes these people come to the market once, twice a year, and, you know, ostensibly their job is to sell you wine. But what I always took away from those opportunities was it was the chance to connect with a winemaker, a chance to meet an importer. Uh, And one of the people who I always look forward to seeing was Kareth Overstreet of Brulium Wines. Kareth is not only the winemaker at Brulium, But she's also the one visiting the market kissing hands shaking babies the whole nine yards and she speaks with enthusiastic authority about california pinot noir a really popular category that we haven't discussed in depth on the pod so i gave her a jingle uh, and we caught up just before the freeze last month i think it's a great conversation kareth is a total rock star and i think you'll love the convo too so let's jump in it's been a minute i'm trying to think when was the last time you were in houston
1: I feel like it might've been the time you had cookies for me from Camarada, and I was supposed oh, yes. to take them home for my kids and I ate them all in the hotel room before I got home.
0: I, I I wouldn't blame you for that. It's always around the rodeo time that you normally come, right? It is. and Actually,
1: I know it's been at least, it's probably been two years because I was scheduled to be in Houston for work last year. Um, My first work trip of 2020 was the day that California got shut down for COVID. Really? That actual, yep. I was flying out Monday and on Sunday evening, Governor Newsom closed the wineries and I was like, what? (laughs) And so there it began. And now we're almost a year later.
0: I know right it's wild it's amazing how 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 much time has passed. I mean, they canceled the rodeo again this year as well. uh we're not going to have rodeo mm. until twenty twenty two but I remember that was the moment for many Houstonians that shit got really real is when they realized they couldn't go to the Lizzo concert when the (laughs) concerts weren't going to happen. The rodeo wasn't going to take place. Uh, You actually won at rodeo wine competition one year, right?
1: I did. I won a belt buckle, which was always my goal. As soon as I saw some of the male winemakers in Sonoma County had belt buckles, I really wanted in. And actually the Houston rodeo is the only wine competition where I submit wines every year. Hmm. Um, And it's funny because my friend, Bob Cabral, he has won a saddle. So he was like the top of the top, but that really was never my goal. Cause it's not like you can wear a saddle, but every time I come into the Houston market, I wear my belt buckle. At least one of the two or three days that I'm there, I wear boots and jeans and my belt buckle. I'm super proud. I love it.
0: For listeners at home that maybe aren't familiar with the rodeo wine competition, how does that process work?
1: It's actually really simple. I, we fill out a form and just send in the wines. I think it's probably a lot more rigorous on the Houston tasters. end. I've heard, have you ever tasted for that? Chris?
0: I have not, uh, I've I've not been invited to taste, but
1: well, I think you should thank your lucky stars that you haven't been asked to taste in like Mm. the $9 and under category. Cause (laughs) apparently every, every sort of category is equally rigorous with lots and lots of wines and, um, Sometimes the wines are ethereal and amazing. And I've heard that other times it's a lot of hours of, of mediocre.
0: It's uh, kissing a lot of frogs to find a prince.
1: (laughs) Exactly. But But, you know, nothing moves the needle in Houston more than the Houston rodeo. It really? really truly does. Yep. I had a feature in the Houston Chronicle. Dale took pictures of me, Dale Robertson, who's one of the most warm, generous writers You'll ever meet. I mean, it's just such a pleasure. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's it's wild. And I've only ever been to the rodeo once. It wasn't for the cookoff event that normally starts the rodeo season, but it was a day that Santana was performing. I'd lived in Houston at that point for like six years. And uh, the person I was dating at the time was like, You've lived in Houston for far too long to not go to the rodeo. You need to go eat funnel cake, deep fried Oreos, deep fried turkey legs, deep fried everything, um, and watch some fucking broncos and things like that. So it was wild. It was definitely crazy. So
1: I've only been to the best bites, which was the mm. wine event. But oh my goodness, just seeing all of the boots and all of the shirts and the costumes and the jewelry, I mean, it is just it's over the top. It's a lot of fun. I've never seen more of those floral silver, I think they're called concha necklaces. They're beautiful. A lot of them are Native American hand-tooled silver. They look like Squash blossom flowers, and I mean mm. they're big chunky pieces of jewelry, and they're just like these stunning statement pieces. And the boots, oh my goodness! So my boots are black, and they have stitching that's pink to match my barrel racks, and stitching that's turquoise because I like bright colors. All right. but they're nothing compared to some of the crazy wild exotic skin boots that you see. My goodness,
0: it's it's crazy. I always say that if I ever move from Texas before I leave, I'll, I'll buy a pair of like a I think roper boots are the ones that are more useful and more utilitarian. They have less of a heel to them. Right. But yeah, I feel like I need to invest in a pair of boots.
1: They are comfortable, actually. So I do wear mine um, when I have wine tasting events. I usually like with a dress because they're just more comfortable than heels if you need to be on your feet for six or seven hours. But yeah, it's most fun to wear them when I'm in Houston.
0: Is your pair leather or what ostrich ostrich leather no
1: no no they're just plain old cowhide like i liked them because they had bright stitching but they're nothing fancy i mean if you have a you know zero to 100 scale of you know 100 being crazy ostrich mine are like a 10
0: (laughs) what wine did you submit to the rodeo competition
1: so i always submit all of the pinots and it was the was it the 15 gaps crown that won the belt buckle and the 18 gaps crown just got like gold of the gold, double gold. It's like one step below the belt buckle. So I'm super bummed Mm -hmm. I didn't get a second belt buckle, but I'm super grateful that the gaps got double, double gold. And I was cautiously optimistic slash surprised that the Houston rodeo was still uh going to be the Best Bites intense, crowded event when I got the paperwork in the mail a few weeks ago. And I did submit the wine and ship it only to find out days later that it had been canceled. Oh no. But I'm not, like I said, I'm not surprised.
0: And you said that's the only uh kind of competition you send your wine to every year. What What is it about the rodeo other than the potential of winning a belt buckle? Yeah, it was
1: like the belt buckle. It was all about the belt buckle. I wanted a belt all buckle
0: about
1: the, yeah. that all the other guys in Sonoma County who had belt buckles <laughs> like this, like ACO guys have them, you know, Bob Cabral has one. I think, you know, there's a bunch of people who have them.
0: There might be an easier way for you to get a belt buckle than than winning a wine competition. I bet there are places that sell these things.
1: Probably, but not like, you know, it always has like wine themed stuff on it and it's really, really big and it has wine glasses and grapes and and it's another excuse to be in Houston and to eat in Houston. So the best, best bites competition, I mean, I pour wine for a little bit, but I spend most of the time tooling around, eating buddy, everybody else's food.
0: That's awesome. That's super fun. Do you do you find that the people that are signed up to your newsletter there's a large like Texas contingency? And is there any way to know if those people found you through rodeo or anything else?
1: That's a good question. So Texas was the first state in which I had distribution outside of California. So Texas has always been incredibly generous and kind in supporting Brulium wines from day one. And I do think that through Rodeo and through a lot of restaurants, we have attracted a lot of people to our mailing list. People who've said, oh, we've had your wine at XYZ awesome Houston restaurant. And we loved it. And the staff talks about you and shares your story. And we're sending you this email to tell you we had your wine and we can't wait to be signed up for more. So Houston is close to my heart.
0: Awesome. I love it. You referenced your story there for listeners that maybe aren't familiar with that story. Do you want to give them the the quick overview?
1: Sure. Um, So winemaking is a second career for me. When I was a kid, my dad always said, you can be whatever you want after medical school. And I held up my end of the deal. Um, I completed medical school. I completed an internship in general surgery, a residency in pathology, followed by two fellowships. And after all of that training and passing my boards, I decided I'd rather be a winemaker. So I went back to UC Davis. I started the winery in 08. I made one barrel of wine that year. That's 25 cases. That pretty much means um, your generous friends will buy most of your wine and you'll be sold out. (laughs) Um, Now I make about 1200 cases a year and absent COVID, I am on the road for sales in the spring, meeting people, talking to people, talking to restaurant staffs, doing training. And um just having fun with people
0: in the wine community. What was it like? Because obviously I have never been to medical school. Um, no, no plans to, no medical professionals within my immediate family. I have a couple of friends that have done it, but I imagine it's an incredibly rigorous thing. And it's not like you chose an easy route. Um, I don't want to shout out any medical careers that maybe are slightly easier than others, but it didn't seem like you took like the short route. I imagine that you used a lot of very different skills at uc davis than you did in medical school was there any overlap there between either of those educational paths or anything like that
1: that's a good question i think you'd be surprised how much overlap there is i mean anytime something goes wrong with winemaking it's always organic chemistry secondary to microbiology so in other words you have unwanted critters unwanted microbes unwanted yeast or unwanted bacteria that get into the wine and they're eating metabolizing something in that wine and making a byproduct that doesn't smell good or doesn't taste good so having a background in basic science is really helpful for being able to head off those kinds of problems you certainly don't need an md to be a winemaker right but Just any kind of foundation in basic science is really helpful. And I'm also, I'm good and comfortable with things like yeast biochemistry, harvest fermentation chemistry. What I'm not so good at is hooking up pumps (laughs) and I don't drive a forklift, which is good. I drive a minivan, but not a forklift.
0: That's funny. I got to imagine most of the people that are doing that UC Davis program, I imagine they're going into that at a much younger age than you probably were when you were doing it, right? I mean, you had already major way through residency. Um, I imagine a lot of the other people, this is their first career, right? Going to UC Davis, right? Was there much of an age gap between you and the other people in your class?
1: So there was some, so the program that I did at Davis was through the Davis extension. So it wasn't an undergraduate degree in analogy and viticulture but it took me about two and a half years to get through all of the classes. So of course, UC Davis has their bachelor of science program for people who come in as freshmen to UC Davis and go through that program. They also have uh, master's and PhD programs as well on campus, which are tremendous sort of at that point, having already had an MD, I didn't really feel like I needed to go back and get a master's degree or or a PhD on top of that. I felt pretty confident with the amount of science that I would need to be making wine in a non-academic setting. Um, So through the program that I did, there were a mix of people. Um, There were actually a lot of folks who had started working in the winery at the ground up, just as harvest interns or cellar interns, and then they wanted to go on to become winemakers. So they had all of this practical experience that I lacked, but none of the academic background, whereas I had all of the academic background, but not as much practical experience. So it really was really a nice mix of people who had a lot of different skill sets and knowledge.
0: No, for sure. I don't know. You talk about that first barrel of wine that you made and you had 25 cases, Is it harder to sell 25 cases of wine or 1,200 cases of wine? Which one is the bigger challenge? Which one occupies more real estate in your mind as you're trying to move through inventory?
1: I think it's hard to know. You know, with the 25 cases, there's that that fear you know, of leaping into something new, like, oh my gosh, I made this thing, I worked so hard for it, I've transitioned careers, what if nobody likes it, what if I can't sell it? And you know you get all the pity purchases, right? So you get all of your friends who are gonna buy it once, then the issue becomes when the next vintage rolls around, if you made a really crummy product, you're not gonna get the pity purchase twice. Yeah. On the other hand, the first time that I had a thousand cases that I bottled, because you know, it was, you know, it, it between you know, the rosé and the zin get bottled separately from the pinot and chard. So you know, the first time I had a thousand cases stacked up, I looked up and down those pallets and was like, "Oh, expletive! I got a lot of stuff to sell. That's a lot of bottles. Twelve thousand yeah. bottles. Yeah, It's a lot.
0: No, it's a lot. It's a it's a lot of wine. And you were talking about you know traveling in the market and you know doing work withs and you know working with on premise accounts, off premise accounts." trying to get the wine, you know, into the right places and make sure they're telling the right story. What is the biggest challenge in that side of things? Like,
1: yeah, I'm, I've been really lucky in that the people that I've clicked with in restaurants are people with whom I've been able to forge a relationship. And I think when you have that personal connection, it makes it easier for the staff to sell the story in an authentic way. Mm -hmm. You know, I can, I can, Reel off five or ten or more buyers in Houston, and I can tell you things about them. You know, like I know that you're a marathon runner, I know that you went to Tufts, you know, I can tell you things about other Psalms uh, and buyers in the community. You know, when Allison at Houston, wine merchant got married, you know, that Emily also, Emily Tolbert, she also um, went to medical school.
0: Friend of the pod. Exactly.
1: Steve has two daughters. Steve over at Papas has two daughters, and you know, I know these these things about people because we've had longstanding relationships with them. And I think and, you know, friendships, you know, I I love going into the market and seeing the same people and their face lights up when I bring them biscotti. And I don't know, it's just nice.
0: No, for sure. I think that is an element that we're I don't know if we're losing it necessarily, but it's certainly a harder thing to cultivate, right? When, I don't know if you've done virtual events with anyone here in Houston or how things have worked, but it it is a challenge to continue to build on those relationships at a time when you can't physically be there tasting the wine with them. Or they might not even be tasting the wine when the new vintage is released, depending on the distributor.
1: Absolutely. So all of the virtual events that I've done in Houston were for an audience instead of the buyer. Hmm. So, you know, like a uh, mutiny wine room mm-hmm. had me do a virtual event. I think it was mutiny wine. Yeah, it was mutiny wine room. Yeah, they're in the had heights. me do. Yep. Had me do a virtual event for them. And, you know, the challenge with virtual events is bringing warmth and enthusiasm and joy over the computer. And keeping things entertaining. I mean, especially these days, people just want to hear stories. They want to know that you turned on the hose during harvest and you soaked your pants because the hose was turned towards you and it looked like you wet your pants for the entire day. Like that's what people want to know. They don't want to know what percentage of new oak from which forest in France. They don't care if it's Tronquet or Allier. You know, they just want to be entertained.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's always the challenge with these virtual events is knowing your audience. And normally, when you're doing an in person event, you can see if people's eyes are glazing over, you're losing them. And you don't always have that when you're leading a virtual class. Are there other like big success stories from like virtual events that you've done or things that you've learned leading these meet the winemaker for lack of a better word whatever the events are called
1: you know everybody says they want technical winemaking and they want to know about you know oxidation reduction chemistry and yeast biochemistry so you set all that stuff up and then in reality they just don't you can tell when people are getting bored and i'm gearing up and the yeast they're budding and it's so exciting and it's the log phase of Fermentation and wah wah. Yeah. Again, they just want the stories.
0: Yeah. No, that's- you
1: know, they, they can tell you they want the technical bits, but they just really want the fun stuff and the hooks, you know, the hooks that remind them about a specific place or a specific AVA and what makes it special. Nobody is going to remember the daily diurnal temperature variation in the Santa Lucia Highlands. What they're going to remember are the funny quips that I make that the grapes wear sweaters instead of bikinis. Like Mm -hmm. that's what they're going to remember. What does
0: that mean? Grapes wear sweaters instead of bikinis.
1: So Santa Lucia Highlands is the first AVA in California that really just stole my heart for domestic Pinot Noir. The Santa Lucia Highlands is about four hours south of Sonoma County. It's my only fruit that I get that's not from Sonoma. And I choose it because it does have such a distinct terroir to it. Um, Randy Capraso from the Somme Journal jokes about the arroir, A-R-R-O-I-R, because it smells like the air, like the Mm -hmm. chaparral and the wild herb that grows next to all of the vineyards being so close to the ocean. And because of that, it's very, very, very cool there. So the jet of water coming into Monterey Bay is the coldest stream of water on the Pacific in all of California. And that's due to this thing called the Blue Grand Canyon. And it's exactly what you think it is. It's like a big hole in the bottom of the ocean. And it draws this cold jet of water into the coast at Monterey. And that, in turn, drives the daily fog and wind that you get in the Santa Lucia Highlands. So in the morning, of course, you're getting the fog off of the ocean, and then in the afternoon, you get the wind. But The really interesting thing about Santa Lucia Highlands is the winds come in before the peak of the day. In Sonoma, when we talk about the Petaluma Gap, you know, the the fog comes in in the morning, the sunshine heats up, and you get to the peak of the day, three, four o'clock, and it's warm and toasty and sunny and then the wind comes. In contrast, in Santa Lucia Highlands, those cold winds start racing through at one, two o'clock in the afternoon. You never hit the bikini phase. The grapes never want to take off their sweaters in Santa Lucia Highlands. It's always too
0: cold. That's a that's a great way to describe it. It gives people a perfect kind of idea of what, what's going on there. And
1: it sticks in their head. Think of like all the little grapes wearing like little knitted Afghan sweaters.
0: It's cute. <laughs> so how often do you get down there to the Santa Lucia Highlands? I mean, your winery, all your other work, is up in Sonoma. They're not exactly, you know, a couple hours apart. It's like you said, they're very, very far apart. It's a full day trip probably to drive down there. How, how do you go about like checking in on the vineyard, spending time there? How, how does that work out logistically?
1: That's a great question. This is where it pays to have the greatest wine grower partners in the world. So I get down to Santa Lucia Highlands in person maybe once or twice during the season, and yeah, it's four hours and. If you don't get traffic one way, you're going to get it back through the Bay Area in the other direction. Like you can't win in both directions. Mm -hmm. But my grower, Mark Pizzoni is the best. So every week and then every probably four days as we get closer to harvest, he goes out to my block and picks me a big Ziploc bag of fruit and he sends it up on a truck and it goes to his brother's winery and I just pick it up in Santa Rosa. Mm. Now, the magic of having the Pizzoni family and the Francioni families as your grower partners is they also grow vegetables. Mm-hmm. So I'll go pick up a big Ziploc, like a gallon Ziploc filled to the rim with grapes. And in addition, I'll also find three cucumbers, four bags of romaine lettuce, and three heads of cauliflower, all mm-hmm. for me to pick up in the same day. It's awesome.
0: That's wild. It's like a bogo. You get some grapes, get, yes. some lettuce, get a little yes. bit of everything.
1: I do. It's awesome.
0: So you were talking about that partnership you have with growers, some of these vineyards that you work in, you talk about Gaps Crown earlier, like these are highly sought after sites, right? I mean, there's a lot of people that want to buy this fruit and maybe it's similar. Maybe there's some parallels to the relationships you build with buyers in the market, but how do you go about like maintaining those contracts? I don't know if it's like a one-year contract, multiple year contract, what's kind of the relationship you have with those growers in that sense?
1: That's a great question. So, um, it's very similar to my relationship with buyers and that it's predicated on bribing people with baked goods. <laughs> um, and that's where it always,
0: always starts. It's the biscotti. Um,
1: it's the biscotti. So, um, for the gaps crown vineyard. Yeah. I, did indeed, I think, bring biscotti way back when. So GAPS was originally owned by CalPERS um, and then it got sold to Bill Price. Um, And I've been in that vineyard since 2008 um, comfortably. But when I was sold to Bill Price, I was really concerned that I would be kicked out of the vineyard. So for people who don't know, Gap's Crown is about 130 acres. It sits on the mountain at the edge of the western face of the mountain between Sonoma and Napa, sort of behind Sonoma State um, in what's called the Petaluma Gap, which is a wind tunnel Um, That has similar characteristics to Santa Lucia Highlands, fog in the morning, wind in the afternoon. But the Gaps Crown Vineyard is very well known because it was one of the four vineyards that Costa Brown used in their 08 vintage when it was the wine of the year. So suddenly the Gaps Crown Vineyard got propelled into the stratosphere and then Bill Price bought the vineyard, boy, 2013, 14, I can't even remember anymore. And he had bought it as an investment for Costa Brown. So to put things in perspective, you know, let's pretend Costa Brown gets a hundred tons off that ranch a year, maybe give or take, right? And maybe Patson Hall might get sixty or eighty tons off that ranch. I get three tons. <laughs> I have a tiny block at the bottom and a tiny block at the top. And I'm so covetous of my rows. It's like burgundy, you know, like my little postage stamp sized allocation and my yeah. 10 rows at the bottom. So when Bill Price bought the vineyard, I was really, really worried they were going to kick me out because I do call my own pick. And sometimes I pick earlier than other people and they're stuck picking my 10 rows. <laughs> um, and there might not be other things going on at that time. But the vineyard crew stood up for me they said you can't cut cupcake girl she's our favorite and that's because in 2011 i had made them cupcakes 2011 was a cold cold year um i always joke um we paid for the botrytis but they gave us the aspergillus for free like Mm -hmm. it was a cold wet year um and i was scheduled to pick the gaps ahead of a rainstorm and I kept tracking the weather and tracking the weather. And I was really afraid that it was gonna rain during my pick. So I called the vineyard manager who was in charge of scheduling picks. And I said, please, oh please, can you change my pick by 24 hours? And he said, it's about to rain. We're picking 40 tons on the fly for Pats the Hall. We're not moving your pick. You have 2.7 tons coming, no. And on a lark, I said, I'll make you cupcakes. And he said, hmm. Okay, sure, we'll totally pick your block, no problem.
0: That's wild. That's wild. And
1: sure enough, they called me at nine o'clock. We're getting ready to pick your block. They called me at 11. We're lining up at your block. They called me at 2 a.m. Hey, we just picked your block. They called me at 4 a.m. We're on the way to the winery. We'll be there at six. And lo and behold, they picked my fruit early before the rain, which was amazing because after the rain, none of that fruit the integrity changed after that specific rainstorm. And after harvest, I brought 24 pumpkin cupcakes with cream cheese frosting, I still bring cupcakes and treats to Gap's Crown because my top block is so high in the vineyard, it's block 1C, that I can't get there with a the minivan. So every time I want a sample, I rely on the crew to drive me up in the four-wheel drive pickup trucks. So
0: that's funny. Um,
1: they went to bat for me and I'm very grateful to get to play on that playground with the big boys.
0: Pumpkin cupcakes. I mean, people will do crazy things for pumpkin cupcakes. It's the-
1: frosting, right?
0: Yeah, the cream cheese. People love a cream cheese it's frosting.
1: Cream. Yeah, it's the cream cheese Yeah, like red frosting. velvet,
0: right? Like you're not really there for the red velvet. You're there for the cream cheese frosting.
1: Absolutely.
0: Do you have a like secret recipe that you use? Or is it are you willing to divulge said information?
1: Oh, I will totally divulge. It's the Martha Stewart recipe. If you Google Martha Stewart pumpkin cupcakes online, you'll totally come up with the recipe that I use. Public domain. There
0: we go. So I don't know if you've heard about this new ice cream flavor from Jenny's ice cream. Are you familiar with Jenny's ice cream?
1: Okay. I feel like I heard about this briefly on the podcast. It's been a minute on NPR, but let me get, is it, is it? Oh, it's something funny. It's like. Is it tuna fish or is it bagel is it lox and cream cheese what is it's it? everything uh, bagel
0: everything bagel
1: everything bagel. that's right have you had it
0: i haven't had it but the base it's a cream cheese ice cream base that's and the ice cream itself if you get a spoonful without any of the filling or anything like that the it just tastes like cream cheese that's that that's the base to it and then of course they add the poppy seeds the sesame seeds The garlic, it's salty, savory, all mixed together. Luckily, there aren't any locks. I think, added to it. But (laughs) there there is a Jenny's ice cream here in town, um, in the Heights. And I'm going to go try and secure myself a pint of it. uh, Because it just sounds fascinating, but...
1: Will you email me because I am a big bagel locks person. Yeah, but I don't know how I feel about good
0: bagels in Sonoma. I mean, is there a good place for bagels or do you have to make it yourself or drive in to the city? Like what's the game plan for bagels?
1: So it's been it's been pretty sparse. It's been pretty, pretty barren for bagels in Sonoma County for a lot of years. But recently, um, one of the local restaurants, restaurateurs, who happens to be Jewish, he opened a deli called Grossman's and he makes a really good bagel. So we've been on Grossman bagels for a while. All right. That said, during COVID to make myself feel better, I have been known to order in from Russ and Daughters in New York.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: And send myself bagels and white fish salad
0: that sounds like the ultimate treat that sounds great good for them that they're doing that delivery around the country
1: yeah oh my gosh when you get that like box and you see the russ and daughters with the fish on the side and you know you've got that white fish salad in there oh it's the best last time i was
0: in the city i i definitely ate like two bagel sandwiches from russ and daughters didn't feel bad about it it was great it was awesome
1: no, I wouldn't either. Um, because it's got all the protein in the middle. Oh right? yeah, totally. It's not like a carb thing. And you run all the time. You need all that carbs if you're going to do a marathon.
0: That is exactly the justification I needed. Thank you. <laughs> Are there any dream vineyards, like vineyards that you haven't worked with that, like, if the opportunity became available, you'd love to work with?
1: So I've always sort of pined after the Cerise Vineyard in Anderson Valley. Um, I made Anderson Valley Pinot in 8, ten, eleven, 10, 11, I guess. I love the fruit from Anderson Valley. I worked with Rich Savoy um, and his home ranch vineyard, which I think has since been popped by Ted Lemon, actually, the oh. one acre vineyard called Deer Meadow Ranch. And, you know, my husband, my CF no said you can't make 100 cases from 15 different vineyards. You got to like consolidate the efforts. So I let Anderson Valley go for a while. And actually, just this past year, 2020, I dipped back into Anderson Valley, which was a ton of fun. And the fruit's beautiful and tasting great. It's not from Cerise, but it's from a nearby vineyard. So I'm really excited about
0: that. Maybe we can let people know a little bit of the differences um, between Anderson Valley, Sonoma Valley. We, we had such a great description earlier about what was going on further south, kind of in that like central coast area. But what's going on in Anderson?
1: Sure. So should we start in Sonoma and then work up?
0: That sounds great. Yeah.
1: Perfect. Okay. So why don't we start in the Russian River Valley because that's where we have our own little estate vineyard that we farm. So for me, I make four different single vineyard pinots um, and I guess Anderson Valley would make five. But so most of the fruit that I work with, I buy and only a small fraction of the Pinot that I make comes from fruit that we own and we farm. So our tiny vineyard sits in the Russian River Valley, which is one of the most well-known catchphrases for Pinot Noir in Sonoma County. And for me, when I make a Russian River Valley Pinot Noir, I really strive to have a taste of site and taste of place. For me, Russian River Valley, is really that candied red cherry, that sort of confectionery, potpourri, floral top notes, lots of warm baking spices, and just that you know pop of of cherry. And some people say it's like red cherry candy. Some people say it's kind of like sarsaparilla, Dr Pepper cherry. Some people say it's kind of like throat lozengery cherry. But for me, that really speaks to to place into the russian river valley and we do get some fog in the morning we're the eastern edge of the russian river valley so we're not getting quite as much coastal fog as some places but today for example in the morning was plenty foggy outside but it really has a purity of fruit to it um sort of an ethereal lightness to it and it tends to be a very approachable style of wine that's just easy drinking, bright and food friendly. In contrast to the Russian River Valley, I make two pinots from the Petaluma Gap. And I can tell you that it's got fog in the morning and wind in the afternoon. And you're gonna say, oh, it sounds just like Santa Lucia Highlands. (laughs) And it does, except for again, the wind doesn't come until four o'clock. So the grapes have the opportunity to get nice and warm and toasty before that coastal breeze cools them down. So I have two different Pinot Noirs in the Petaluma Gap. The first is the San Giacomo Vineyard on Roberts Road. And that's the first vineyard in that neighborhood. It's got no elevation and it's the furthest west, which means when the fog comes off the ocean, it hits there first and it sits there and that when the wind comes in the afternoon, it hits there first and dries it up. So it's the coolest. Sitting right behind it is the Gaps Crown Vineyard with some elevation. Remember, I talked about needing to take the four-wheel drive truck to the top. If you're at the top, you're largely above the fog line. So that block is going to be really toasty and voluptuous and fruit-forward in California style. So for all of those wines, though, having that wind come through has a really critical role. It thickens up the skins and it keeps the grapes nice and cool. So if grapes get too hot, instead of sweating like a person, they respire their malic acid. And all that really means is you're losing acid when it gets hot. And of course, we want to retain acid. It keeps the color bright. It keeps the palate bright. It makes things so that they can be ageable and stay fresh when you open them 10 years later. So you'll find Pinot Noirs from the Petaluma Gap have more pallet weight, more structure, and more acidity than you might expect from a grape that actually sits east tucked against the mountains. So if you look at a map, you might think, how can it be cool there? It's on the other side of the freeway. It's tucked against these mountains. But because of that wind, it stays cool and has these really specific characteristics. And it's pretty neat. When they did the boundaries for the Petaluma Gap, they actually used anemometers, So they had these, you know, the little devices that measure the wind. And if the wind didn't hit a certain threshold, they moved them. So all of the boundaries of this region are literally defined by the wind tunnel and the wind miles per hour. That's wild. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It was pretty cool. And then if you travel north of Sonoma into Mendocino, you'll get to the Anderson Valley, which is a beautiful narrow-throated valley where it's very, very cool. It's almost like the border of where you're going to be able to ripen grapes. And because of that, they have um, a beautiful red fruit character to them. I think that Anderson Valley really does a beautiful job with sort of cranberry, wild strawberry, pomegranate. And Often, sometimes a little bit lighter bodied, I think, than the Petaluma Gap. They're not seeing all that wind. It's definitely cool, cool, cool. They have warmer days sometimes than we do, um, and definitely cooler nights. So they're seeing a big diurnal spread, which Pinot Noir loves, and just a different characteristic than we're getting down in Sonoma, which to me is the fun of Pinot Noir, right? You've got all of these different regions, and Pinot really tastes like where it's growing.
0: So, you know, something you mentioned earlier, right, is that your husband is the one that's kind of trying to keep you in check when it comes to working with new vineyards or anything like that. What's kind of the process? Is it a a grower coming to you and saying, hey, we have access to these really fantastic vineyards? Like the time frame between deciding you want to work in a new space, make a new cuvee, bottle a particularly new vineyard um, or get access to a new vineyard. Like how much like. Forecasting and budgeting and all of that goes into the decision to bring on a new line, bring in a new vineyard-designated uh, bottling.
1: So it always comes down to my husband, the CF to budgeting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I am lucky and grateful to be in vineyards that I love now that are super stable. And in all of the vineyards where I am now, I went and sought the fruit um, early in my winemaking career because I tasted wines from those vineyards and was struck by something special about those wines that drew me to the wine and then therefore drew me to the fruit Um, as i've become more established as a winemaker time and time again i get growers emailing me often telling me they have extra fruit am i interested in more vineyards am i interested in additional fruit and i'm always flattered Um, and my husband will tell you that during harvest like we set a budget, we have a plan, and inevitably I'll call him and say like, "Oh my god, we can get three tons from here. Oh my god, we can get two tons from there." And uh for the most part he says no. <laughs> um I always want to make w- more wine because I just like to make wine. And I get so excited during harvest.
0: Yeah. But Are there any like constraints in the space that you're in like the winery itself? Do you have is it like there's only so much room, there's only so many fermenting tanks, there's only so many barrels? Is it that as well? or
1: It's some of that too. So yeah. I'm in a shared winemaking facility. It's a co-op um, and it's run by an engineer with an engineering mind. So we, of course, have all of the fruit that we anticipate bringing into the winery and the tonnage that we anticipate. And he puts everybody onto a spreadsheet. And um, if you're going to run a successful custom crush cooperative facility, you need to have a number of winemakers making a number of kinds of wines from different places, because it's not going to work if everybody is bringing in their same twenty to fifty tons in the same two weeks. No, so true. you can't just have cool climate Pinot people like me. <laughs> you need some Napa cab people, you need Sonoma cab people, you need cool climate Syrah people, you need Savignon Blanc people who are gonna start to use and pay for the cost of that press, making white wine really early in the season. Um So you need to be able to spread everybody out. You need early ripening vineyards like San Giacomo, like the Gaps Crown Vineyard, and then later ripening vineyards like San Giacomo, Roberts Road, which is usually two to three weeks for me after Gaps. Hmm. And that's enough time to turn over a tank. Um, And so that's what you need to be able to plan out. That said, in clutch years like, you know, 2020, or when I started making Chardonnay, sometimes it is a little bit more of a last minute decision. (laughs) Um, But it works out for the best.
0: I'm sure there's also an element of like, I don't know if there is a lot of camaraderie or collaboration. If you have winemakers with totally different backgrounds, working with different varieties, um, all in one space like that. I imagine... There are probably moments where, you know, it's a little tight quarters, but I'm sure oftentimes there's the ability to connect and collaborate with really interesting people.
1: Oh, absolutely. Especially during harvest when you're running around like crazy and you're stressed and you're wondering, am I making the right decision? Because the most important decision is when you pick the fruit, right? Once it's off the vine, it can't go back. (laughs) So you're always tasting and monitoring. And I'm lucky to be in a facility where I'm comfortable sharing samples. I'll say, Joe, Ashley, you know, will you take this juice? What do you think? I mean, I think it tastes great. And they're like, oh, it's still kind of sour. Really? I'm like, Mm. oh, hmm. guess I'm just getting excited. I guess we have (laughs) to give it another week.
0: That's funny. You know, the other thing that I'm thinking about is these different, you know, vineyard designated bottlings that you have. Are are you getting feedback from your distributors in the market? Which wines are doing what in the market and all that stuff?
1: I get some of that. Um, You know, and it's really it's market dependent mm-hmm. you know like in houston i'm with a really small distributor i love them i'm with dionysus imports and they do a lot of um rhone stuff a lot of european wines and as you know with rhone comes savory and garrigue. so their palates of everybody on that team tend to be a little bit more old world so of the Pinots that I make, they tend to gravitate towards San Giacomo and Sabrana, since those have more savory notes. On the other hand, there's so many sort of blue ribbon, high-end steak places around Houston that are looking for that sort of the apotheosis of California wine, really, which is the Gap's Crown Vineyard, right? It's like fruit for it, it's luscious, and it's got so much name recognition. Mm-hmm. So having that in my portfolio is also really helpful because it fills a niche in houston people are always looking for wines of provenance with that on the label and then of course there's some specific places that just really like the tory hill because it has the art label and it's fun
0: Uh, for people that don't know that label that that may not have seen it before how would you describe it
1: oh yeah so um the art it's art drawn by my kids. So every year the art changes and improves to a degree as the kids get older. It's always um, hand lettered too. So the name of the vineyard, the AVA, um, Sonoma County, it's all written by hand. All of the labels feature our pound dog Dexter. Um, the early iterations featured a pickup truck because my son didn't want to draw the minivan because- He didn't he want a minivan there? On there? i know i was like what are you kidding minivans are so cool
0: are you a honda odyssey type or toyota what 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 are we driving
1: i well i right now i just got the chrysler because Mm. it's the hybrid so i was a sienna person for years and Mm -hmm. years so i mean you know having bruno and then twins two years later i've been in a minivan for a lot of years (laughs) so i loved the sienna even though the honda odyssey has the vacuum
0: i didn't know it came with that feature that's a big feature that's a game changer. It is,
1: yeah. The Honda Odyssey has a vacuum inside. But then we have the dog. So the dog like cleans up the Cheerios after the kids when they were little. Yeah. But now I have the hybrid, so I have the sticker.
0: Okay. So like now
1: them. that Bruno drives, I'm driving carpools less often, but yet I'm indignant that I've lost access to the carpool lane. So for that reason, I recently converted to the Chrysler hybrid minivan.
0: There, there we go. It's smart. Smart move. Well, we've talked a lot about Pinot, but one of my favorite wines that you make is a Zinfandel. When did you start working with Zen?
1: Pretty early on, actually. So, my first Zen vintage was 2009, um, shortly after we'd moved to Healdsburg. And as you know, I share um, a passion for distance running with you, albeit I'm like, half of your pace. Yeah, but you qualified
0: um, for Boston. Like that's nothing to snuff at. Like that's that's pretty impressive. In my
1: youth. So that was a number of years ago. But yes, I did. And you know the qualifications for women on a relative scale are um
0: quite nah, a bit nah, easier. Nah, I nah, just nah,
1: I was uh, I had to all I had to do I think were eight twenty sevens to qualify, which I don't think I could I'm not even near <laughs> that anymore. But uh so yeah so I used to plug from town out into the Dry Creek Valley and one of the first wineries that you see um, is Moritzon, And I always thought, well, gosh, I bet they're not worth their salt. You know, they built the first winery. So all of the tourists are going to stop there. You don't have to have good wine if you're the very first stop on the scenic route. And one day I went in there and I tasted their Zin, and it knocked my socks off. I mean, I tasted their cemetery vineyard bottling from Rockpile and it was like no Zinfandel I'd ever had. It's not jammy. It's not hot. It's not peppery. It's got minerality to it. It's got some muscle and some tannin. It's age-worthy. And I just was over the moon. i would never had anything like that. So of course, having tasted that, I wanted some of that fruit for myself. Mm-hmm. And that really put me on the trajectory of seeking rock pile fruit on my own and bringing forward that expectation that zin defies stereotypes and it can defy stereotypes i just remember that first sip of clay's rock pile zinfandel, being like wow this is not what i expected and i love it and it's delicious and i am now just sort of tickled that i have this reputation of making a zin that does the same thing for other people
0: yeah, I, at the wine bar, I would always describe it as Zinfandel for Pinot Lovers. Delicious wine.
1: Thank you. Yeah, so, you know, I treat the Zin a lot like Pinot Noir. And for me, the enticement of Pinot Noir is just the beautiful perfumed aromatics. And I wanted to bring that that sentiment, that rigorousness to the Zinfandel, too. And the way I can do that is by using all French oak, which is pretty unusual for Zinfandel, you know, given the high price point of French oak and the... the you know, many of the Zins sort of supermarket brands Zins are at a lower price point, but I don't make that much as Zinfandel. So, I mean, on an economy of scale, the, the cost difference between American oak and French oak, if you're only buying a few barrels in the end is not that much. So I've been really lucky that I can use all French oak. Um, which really brings that pretty aromatic complexity to the wine.
0: Yeah. What is it? Historically, it's a lot of American oak used in uh, Zinfandel or something like that. It
1: is. It's true. Um, And just, you know, Zin like cab um, over vintages in oak. And just given sort of Zin's reputation and price point, I think for a lot of people who are making it at a much bigger scale, it just doesn't really pay to pay It doesn't pay to pay for to buy French oak Mm because it's so much more expensive. And American oak gives you a lot of bang for your buck.
0: Yeah, there we go. I, I think about like your role within the winery and kind of like the outsized presence you have like in the market for, you don't make a whole lot of wine, but whenever you come to town, you know, there's so many people that make time to see you. And it's a reflection of the really great personal relationships you have with all of these buyers. I mean how are you and other winemakers like you that rely so much on on on-premise, you know, restaurant, wine bar, businesses like that to support these wines and tell the story? Like, what's the future of that through the rest of 2021 when in so many markets things aren't open, you know?
1: Yeah. It's been really, really hard for small wineries, you know, just like restaurants and hospitality, right? Like, mcdonald's and applebee's are going to be just fine but your favorite they are not going to pick up gaps crown you don't
0: think You don't think mcdonald's <laughs> exactly. is picking it up
1: they're going to do a jenny's mcflurry with um Ooh, gaps crown wine right? that sounds fantastic there you go right I'm here for it have it come out of the machine zzz, on the <laughs> little cone um But, you know, it's all those your favorite neighborhood restaurants, the white tablecloth independently owned, you know, James Beard Fine Dining. Those are the places that pick up my wine and those are the places that are really in dire straits with COVID. And it's been really hard um, for wineries and obviously for restaurants, too. You know, I don't want to sound like a sob story, but you know, we've always relied much more heavily with on premise than in retail, because it's the staff of a restaurant who has the time to share your story when a couple or group of friends sit down at a restaurant, they say, Oh, tell me some what wine should we have can you suggest one of these pinots and when the staff says oh you know carrots she's super fun she comes in and she does a tasting with us and she tells us all about it her kids drew this label and she brought me olive oil that's what sells the wine and having lost that has been really hard so for people who don't know there's sort of two pillars of wine sales the wholesale side which we call three tier and then the direct to consumer side where you say you sign up on my website you buy wine from me and we ship it to you in the mail and we had relied very heavily on the three-tier side and we lost that entire pillar and it has not come back yet um so that's hard so i would say to people if you love small wineries wherever they are whether it's in california oregon washington virginia the Banana Belt of Colorado, buy wines from those small wineries um, and support your neighborhood restaurants.
0: I love it. Kareth, thank you so much for your time. If people want to learn Chris. more about the winery or about you, where can they find you on social media or the interwebs?
1: Awesome. Thank you. So we have a website. It's www.bruliumwines.com. You can find us on Instagram at bruliumwines, Twitter at bruliumwines. What am I missing? We have Facebook. It's also um, at Brulium Wines. So please reach out um, and say hello if you're in the Sonoma area, because we're newly re re reopened for outdoor tastings. Re re or, um, reopened. Exactly. Yeah. Just like you guys. Um, yeah. Or say hello on social media, because I would love it. And thank you again for hosting me today, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Oh, so
0: much fun! It was so good seeing you. It was an excuse to just catch up and chat and hear how you're doing. Yes. So cool. Thanks again. Thank you. That is our episode. Thank you so much for listening to both me and Kareth talk about Pinot Noir and Zinfandel in California. You can stream every episode of By the Glass ever recorded on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, Audible, wherever you stream your audio content, you can find these episodes. Uh, So go back through, listen to some of them. It's crazy that we're coming up on the one year mark of the pandemic. This time last year, I was in Japan, and in a couple of weeks, it'll have been the start of me recording these episodes. So I really appreciate those of you that have stuck around since the start, and for those of you that have joined a little later on, um, you could do me a big solid by slapping a five-star review on Apple podcasts. Um, writing a review actually really helps more people find the show. So if you could just take a quick minute to go do that, I would very much appreciate it. All right, cool. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.